You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing assessment and recommendations on the daily hygiene of patients. Our guest is Dr. Timothy Donnelly, currently in the private practice of periodontics and implantology in Bowling Green, Kentucky. He is a sought-after international speaker and publishes frequently on topics of interest to clinical dentists and hygienists. Dentistry Today recently listed him among its leaders in continuing education. Uh, and by the way, if you missed his last podcast, he just recently finished a very, very good podcast on the new message of dentistry, and it's titled, It's No Longer Brush and Floss or Else. So please uh, tap into that one. That is a super informational podcast about the link between oral inflammation and systemic inflammation, how the offices should handle that. Really, really good stuff. So today we're going to start something different. And um, the title, as I mentioned, is Patients Daily Hygiene. It's time to think about what you don't see. Dr. Donnelly, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So um, you're suggesting that traditional approach of making sure the patient removes the plaque needs to change. What do you mean by that? Well, if you think about it, dentistry's always taken, and now you see it, now you don't approach. Removal of the visible plaque was thought to be all that was necessary to really get periodontal disease or gingivitis to resolve. And indeed, in some patients, regular removal of the visible plaque that you can see is sufficient. But in this new age of dentistry, where achieving and maintaining a preferred level of oral health is an important component of wellness, I think that mindset has to change. We now know that persistent oral inflammation contributes to systemic inflammation. The bacterial etiology initiates a host response that leads to a local collection of bacteria, bacterial byproducts, mediators of inflammation released by the resident periodontal inflammatory cells. When periodontal and gingival inflammation persists, that local inflammatory response actually spills into the bloodstream and contributes to this, the systemic burden of inflammation. And it's, it's systemic inflammation that drives the development and progression of many of the life-robbing chronic diseases of aging, things like heart disease, diabetes, dementia, even certain types of cancers. Thus, especially in patients in whom the reduction of systemic inflammation is important, I think we need to maximize the removal of the etiology. And that's the key phrase in the whole thing. We have to maximize the removal of the etiology that leads to the local and systemic response because those responses can adversely affect both oral and overall health. So if the goal is to remove the etiology, you obviously want to give the patient the best tools to do that. Um, can you explain what the current understanding of the etiology is? I, I indeed can, and it's kind of an interesting story because it's stuff that we've always realized, but I think we have to look at it from a different perspective. Of course, plaque and calculus leads to caries and periodontal disease, and you certainly have to remove the plaque and calculus. But remember, we've known since the early 70s that bacteria in the mouth is in the form of a biofilm. Biofilm is a term that describes what bacteria do anywhere when they're exposed to an aqueous environment. By nature, the bacteria dump out proteoglycans and other substances, and it's thought to be in an effort to kind of form a, a primitive protective shell around the bacteria. 
it makes the bacteria resistant to things like systemic antibiotic therapy. But you have to also understand that biofilm is a microscopic term. When biofilm grows to the point where you can see it or you, when you take an instrument and you scrape it off and you see what's on the instrument, that's plaque. That's biofilm that has grown to the point where we can identify it as plaque. But not all biofilm grows to the point where we identify it as plaque. Traditional manual toothbrushing, traditional flossing really came from the dark ages when all we were trying to do was remove what we could see. What we now know, especially for those patients in whom reduction of inflammation is critical to both their oral and overall health, we need to give them the tools to maximize the removal of all of the etiology. Yes, remove the plaque, which you can see, and remove any microscopic etiology that you can't see. Because only then have you given the patient the maximum chance of becoming inflammation-free. And as we covered in the previous podcast that I did, eliminating oral inflammation is critical because of its adverse effect on overall health. How dangerous is the biofilm that you can see before it gets to the plaque level? It's, it's equally dangerous. What causes that host response, the host response occurs at a microscopic level. The, back, the body recognizes the bacteria, the antigens on the bacteria as foreign invaders. What plaque is, is plaque is just a large collection of biofilm. The thing right. that makes it mm-hmm. challenging for us is we can't see the biofilm. So we have to assume in a patient that has evidence of inflammation, gingivitis, for instance, we have to assume that there is not only visible etiology, and yes, you want to remove the stain in the plaque, but if you, have, if you expose the tooth surface to a method that removes not just the plaque and calculus, but any potential microscopic etiology, then you're maximizing the chance that you're going to reduce that host response. And very rigorous flossing, not not heavy flossing where it's dangerous to the tissue, but I mean diligent flossing on a regular basis. Wouldn't that effectively remove the critical mass of microscopic uh, biofilm? It absolutely would against the surfaces that the floss contacts. Mm-hmm. And that's a key thing. That The new understanding of biofilm suggests that we need to take a microscopic approach to debridement we also have to take a topographical approach. And what I mean by that, and it's kind of an interesting story with floss. Floss did not come out of any in-depth dental study laboratory. It came out of the basement of a dentist, Levi Parmley, who in the middle 1800s thought it would be a good idea to take a piece of thread and put it between his teeth. And he pulled it out and took a whiff of it. Indeed, it confirmed that it must be removing the junk that's in between his teeth. But we're well beyond 1850 at this point. If you look at the interproximal surface, most of them have a concavity. So when you put a piece of floss in between there, the floss contacts two very small points on that root surface. And there's an area in the concavity that never gets exposed to the mechanical action of floss to remove the biofilm. I have numerous cases that I have... uh, graphic photographic evidence of interproximal surfaces. Patients have flossed religiously their whole life. The dental professional 
uh, could basically go over to their house and floss their teeth at night. And it would have no effect on that concave portion of the root. For patients that have used floss in the past that have no evidence of inflammation, absolutely keep doing the same thing. But the majority of patients that I see, the biggest struggle is adequately debriding in approximal areas. Flossing typically isn't the best thing for the job because it doesn't maximally contact the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I was in dental school in my third year, uh, Dr. Jay Siebert, who passed away, he was a phenomenal periodontist and, and periodontal, uh, he was a professor that was just uh, one of the best. Um, he handed uh, around the, the room, we had 175 people in the room, in the auditorium, a skull of one of his patients who donated her skull. And this woman died at 90 some odd years old and literally had no bone loss. This woman flossed diligently every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Now, you're saying that the floss in most cases doesn't effectively remove the concavity of the of the root surface or the, the area where the floss is going subcellularly, but maybe it's her immune system wasn't as um, responsive. I mean, if, if someone doesn't react to the biofilm as much as another person, then they would have less inflammatory disease, right? Is that correct? No, no question about it. In fact, that's a beautiful example of the fact that periodontal disease really is multifactorial. Yes, biofilm initiates the host response, but it has to be in a susceptible individual. What that really means at a clinical standpoint is, I think it'd be reasonable to conclude that the lady that you were speaking about who lived to a ripe old age, who flossed religiously, probably didn't have the susceptibility to biofilm. And in her case, Indeed, if she came in every visit and she looked magnificent, and by looking magnificent, I mean no evidence of subgingival or supergingival inflammation, keep doing what you're doing. But there's a whole lot of patients that I see on a regular basis that we spend a whole lot of time, or we used to, instructing them on the use of dental floss when dental floss is not the best thing for the job because it doesn't maximally contact the tooth surface. And if you take, if you take that a step further, the, the newer emerging science suggests that we actually have to look at the topography of the surface of the tooth. The typical enamel surface under high magnification isn't marbly, glassy smooth, but rather almost looks like the surface of the moon. And even certain dietary substances can induce changes in the enamel. So that at the ultrastructural level, the tooth surface is really kind of an amorphous, almost sponge-like material. And there's little pits and fissures and lacunae into which bacteria can lodge. And even if the floss thread is dragged over top of that, it doesn't have the potential to get down into those little nooks and crannies. What frustrates a lot of clinicians is, and the biggest pushback I get is people will say, well, I have patients and they floss and they do just wonderfully. Keep doing it. If it's working for them, that means either their surfaces can be addressed adequately by rubbing a piece of string over it, or their host response is such that they don't have ongoing oral inflammation in spite of less than completely adequate debridement. What is your recommended replacement for floss 
for those that are for those offices that are preaching you know here's your free toothbrush and and maintain your flossing like we taught you in the office what's what's the replacement well you got to give the patient the best chance to interrupt the etiology based on the topography so I would say, people say to me, well, what should the patient use? You tell me what surface you're trying to debride. You tell me the topography of that surface, and I'll tell you what I think would give them the best chance to do that. Now, what that really boils down to clinically is, I think there are two main options interproximally. Philips makes an Airfloss Pro, which has the ability to interrupt etiology in the surface on rough surfaces and get into those nooks and crannies I think a second alternative is the correct size interproximal brush. Once again, in the spirit of realizing we're in the age of topographical microscopic etiology, that doesn't mean sticking a proxa brush through there. That means selecting the proxa brush. That's the largest size that just fits, making sure the patient's using it in the right way to make maximum contact. I think both the Airfloss Pro or the interproximal brushes have the potential to do that. Okay, so the Airfloss Pro, what's the mechanism real quickly behind that? And then I have one more question and we'll wrap up this podcast. Yeah, you bet. Uh, it actually sends a stream of these tiny bubbles and it's the energy that's released from those bubbles that actually causes the removal, the interruption of the biofilm. And there's a greater chance of that actually contacting the root surface. My last question is, so what do you do with patients in your practice in terms of assessing their daily hygiene and making recommendations on a regular basis? Uh, and a great question. I, I think we have to look at periodontal disease as a systemic disease with site-specific presentations. And what I mean by that is I think we've got to get away from handing people uh, at the end of the visit, a manual toothbrush and a sample of floss, realizing that that's probably not the best thing for the job. And instead, and what we do in our practice is we first say to ourselves, which sites are problem sites? At which sites in this patient's mouth is there evidence of ongoing inflammation? And then we ask ourselves, what will give the patient the best chance to adequately debride at the microscopic level those sites, and then our abilities as a dental professional have to step in and determine, are they using the right thing? Are they using it in the right way? We make a very specific site-by-site -site recommendation as to what will give the patient the best chance to adequately interrupt the etiology at a microscopic level, because I think that's what's necessary to maximize the chance for patients to eliminate oral inflammation and for some patients, that's really important to do. Very fascinating stuff. It's a different approach, to, certainly. Um, the traditional strategy and way of approaching dental patients, based on your first podcast and your second, um, need to be changed. You know, there's no question about it. That's, like you said, it was a piece of string in someone's basement. But again, you listeners out there, please don't uh, run to your office tomorrow and uh, tell your patients they don't need to floss anymore. That's, I don't think that's what Dr. Donnelly is saying. Um, but uh, the information that he provided certainly will guide us into the new era of treating patients and dealing with the microscopic biofilm, which, which could be quite dangerous and needs to be addressed. Um, did I sum that up right, Dr. Allen, to some extent? I, no, I, I think so, and, and that's usually uh, that's the understandable response that, indeed, I'm not saying uh, don't floss your teeth. What I'm saying is 
adequate, consistently adequate interproximal debridement is an important part of daily hygiene. So figure out what's going to give the patient the best chance to do that. Now, I will tell you from a personal standpoint, I've not flossed my teeth for 15 years. We do not hand out floss samples to our patients in typical fashion. The majority of interproximal surfaces are shaped such. And Europe's way ahead of us uh, on this. Europe understands this. Uh, floss is not kind of the go-to thing, despite the fact that almost culturally, we've been convinced that that's the ticket to uh, uh, oral stability. What the ticket to oral stability is adequately interrupting the etiology at the microscopic level. So whatever oral hygiene aid you're considering for your patients, I think that's what you have to ask. Right. But 15 years ago, they didn't have a Philips air floss. So what did you use if you stopped flossing 15, 15, 15 years ago? Uh, Interproximal brushes, correct size interproximal brushes. Okay. Interesting. I was fortunate to uh, do some work over in Europe and, and was well indoctrinated into kind of the European approach to managing periodontal disease. And uh, as I mentioned, they're kind of ahead of us in terms of realizing Maybe a better way of saying it, you have to understand what the desired outcome is. It's not the procedure that's most important. It's what's going to give you the best chance to get the desired outcome. We think everyone needs to floss. Well, my God, how could you tell a person not to floss? But rather than saying everyone has to floss, what we really need to be saying is everyone needs to be maximally efficient at interproximal removal of biofilm. Mm-hmm. what's going to give the patient the best chance to do that? Right. It's like biofilm management. I mean, it's always going to be there. We just have to manage it so that it doesn't get to a point where it causes destruction locally and systemically. And we have better ways to manage it now than the ways we've been using since the 1850s. Do you prescribe the Philips Airfloss Pro to your patients? Well, what I typically do is I'll explain to patients what's necessary. We have some really nice visuals we use. And I explain to them how each method works. And then uh, rather than telling them what to do, I simply say, ask them, uh, what are the, how do those two methods, uh, what goes through your head when we talk about those two methods? Mm-hmm. What do you think would work for you? And I let them tell me. And then I assess and see, especially at the problem sites over time, are they consistently adequate with what they're using? And if not, then I try and switch it to something else. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal information. And we appreciate your time, Dr. Donnelly, and hope to have you on another one fairly soon. I would look forward to it. Thanks so much for the opportunity.